Well, over the last few weeks, obviously, we've been getting into a lot of history in regard to the Shabbat itself. Today, I want to change it up a bit. Today, we are going to bring this discussion into the now. In other words, I want to show you what modern-day Christian scholarship has to say about all this. How, I mean, how does a real-life modern-day scholar deal with the issue of the church uh, literally abandoning the Sabbath for Sunday and, and changing the solemnity of that observance? So we're going to be doing a little apologetics today. We're going to be getting into that. The particular scholar that I want to bring to the table is a man by the name of Dr. Grant Jeffrey. And if you're not familiar with him, uh, he is internationally recognized. Uh, he's authored some 20 books, uh, sold over millions of copies of, of his books, uh, very highly respected. Uh, in, in the scholarship realm, he, he's a very solid scholar. He's an excellent scholar, I would say. Um, having read some of his works, not all uh, 20 books per se, but uh, definitely more than familiar with this uh, scholar. And I want to let you know, when you get into this realm and you start diving into this pool, uh, there are so many that we could draw from today. So many scholars that we could say, whether they did a dissertation, whether they did their paper on it uh, to get their PhD, whatever, I mean, there's so much information that we have. I chose this particular individual for multiple reasons. He is, in my opinion, the perfect candidate to introduce into this discussion. And why do I say that? I say that because he actually dedicated an entire chapter to this issue. In fact, he titled the chapter with the following, Why do Christians worship on Sunday? And I'm going to tell you, uh, before we even get into this, and we're going to be looking at what this chapter has to say, I'm going to tell you, apologetically from his standpoint, this is one of the clearest, one of the most concise apologetics that I've read for being on that side of the tracks to defend why Christians celebrate Sunday instead of Saturday. Very, very impressive. He gets into history. He gets into scripture. It's a very tight presentation. And so, in all respects, this is the perfect. This is the perfect scenario. He's the perfect scenario. This is the perfect writing to introduce into this series. So we're going to look at what this has to say. And ultimately, as we go through this, and we're not going to get through it all today, but uh, as we go through this, understand what this is about. This is, this is about you being able to appreciate where traditional Christianity is at. Why Christians believe what they believe. Why do they keep Sunday and abandon Sabbath? We need to have that appreciation. And uh, secondly, we need to understand how that position is being defended. Because with all due respect, if they can scripturally defend the position, then it is you who have the problem. It is I who have a problem. Amen? This book governs the faith, period. And so this is very intense stuff. And so we're going to dig into this. And he opens up the chapter this way. This is what he says. Of all the mysteries that I have been asked about over the years, the question of whether Christians should worship on Sunday or on Saturday has perplexed and bothered more believers than any other question in my experience. Think about that statement for a second. Think of the gravity and the weight. Here we have 
a highly respected scholar, okay, with vast experience. And what does he note above all else when it comes to a matter of confusion and perplexity in Christianity? The one thing that is eating at Christians, if you will, above anything else, he notes, is the issue of why Christians worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. Now, if, if I'm coming into the faith I, as a baby believer, and maybe even not even as a baby believer, just as a believer in general, maybe I've been a believer t- for 20 years, and I come across this passage, and I read this, what does that do? When I hear a scholar, a Christian, a reputable Christian scholar, make a statement like this, it draws me in. It piques my curiosity. Even if I didn't know anything about the Sabbath, and now I'm saying we have a scholar that's saying he's dealt with this stuff, and, and the thing that ranks higher than anything is the debate of why are we doing this on Sunday instead of Saturday. To me, as a Christian, something goes off. I want to know why. Why the controversy? Interesting way to open up the chapter, don't you think? It's to say that he recognizes there is something going on. I mean, at the end of this statement, there is something going on here, and it needs to be dealt with. He goes on to say, It is very unfortunate that so few people know the truth about the question of Sunday versus Saturday worship. Many Christians have been puzzled when asked to explain why the church worships God on Sunday. Now, please note here what he has recognized. Many Christians have been puzzled when asked to explain why the church worships God on Sunday. In other words, they can't defend the position. They have troubles. When they're confronted by a Sabbatarian, shall we call them, someone who observes the Sabbath, they struggle with defending it. Hence the whole point of this gentleman's chapter. Dr. Jeffrey put this chapter together to equip them. All right? He goes on. The first day of the week, and not on the seventh day of the week, Saturday, the ancient Sabbath day, very important to pay attention to the description, the descriptions that are being used here. He calls it ancient. It's the ancient Sabbath day of who? The Jews. The Bible clearly describes God's command to the Jews. Notice he does not say to the church. To the Jews, to worship him on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, Saturday. What does this have a smell of? Dual covenant. A lot, right? You remember what I told you, what is at the epicenter of all of this, whether it's the festivals, whether we're talking about Shabbat itself, whether we're we're literally dealing with separation. That's at the epicenter where you rebuild the wall that Yeshua broke down. That is always, every single time at the epicenter of why Christians throw away the Torah in general. I mean, this is the truth. Everywhere you go, you'll find this is at the core. And I just keep showing you this over and over again. Whether you're going throughout the history that we've looked at, it just keeps replaying, recycling. Now he goes on to say this. The early Christians began to use the expression, the Lord's Day. Now listen, during the first century following the birth of the church to refer to Sunday as our common day of worship. In other words, he's saying the early church people, they identified Sunday as an equivalent for the Lord's Day. They're merely now being used as a synonym for one another. 
Okay, so if I said the first day, that would mean Lord's Day, Lord's Day, first day of the week. Problem I have with the statement, that is absolutely not true. It's, it's just simply not true. We'll get more into this. This will develop as we continue in today's message. Now he goes on and he says, Revelation 1.10 is the only place in Scripture that uses the expression, the Lord's day. And it made me crack a little bit of a smile to see that statement immediately follow this statement, a stating that the first century, as he's alluding to, there was clear evidence that they utilized the Lord's Day as an equivalent to Sunday or the first day of the week. But then he follows it up with the statement, but there's only one time in Scripture that we actually see the phrase or the expression, the Lord's Day. And when he says Scripture, he means all of Scripture. This structure of this expression can be found nowhere else except for Revelation 1.10, which we'll look at uh, as we continue. But for now, let's, let's move on. He goes on to say, Sunday was usually identified by the phrase, the first day of the week throughout the New Testament. Did you get, just get what he said? Because it's true. What we now call Sunday, what we identify as Sunday, in the New Testament, it is actually identified as the first day of the week. That's a true statement, all right? I want to point out something here. Notice there's no reverence, no sanctity be given to this expression. And I speak in the New Testament. It is simply called the first day of the week. And as I mentioned in my last message... I delivered to you one of the most critical concepts that you need to literally put deep inside your heart and carry. And if you're going to study the word, if you're going to go and truly appreciate this series, it is the concept of understanding that this New Testament was not written contemporaneously. The men, the authors of these books, whether they're the gospel writers or Paul and so forth, Peter, the men that pen these books, they did not do it in real time as the events are unfolding as though it was an event log. That's not how it is written. It was written by men looking many years after the fact, looking back at all the events with eyes wide open. And what do I mean by that? Eyes wide open. They were looking back at events that took place with total understanding. The mystery of all these events that was happening, which they did not have the understanding of when they were in the midst of them. After Yeshua is resurrected and goes on, there's an outpouring of the Spirit. They have perfect understanding. And it is only in that state, the state of understanding, by which they began to pen. And the New Testament, just read the New Testament. You will find this to be true. There's insight there's powerful spiritual insight into these events that took place. And they're able to incorporate that because they had that understanding. They had it. If the writers, and here's where I'm going with this. If the writers believed what Dr. Jeffrey here is suggesting, we would have a very, very different New Testament. And let me give you an example. Let's put this on paper so that you understand where I'm going with this. In Acts 27, we read, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. 
Now, I want you to understand something. This is one of the primary passages, and we'll see this later on. One of the primary passages that scholars like Dr. Jeffrey will use as this is evidence, this is factual proof that Christians identify Sunday as the Lord's Day, that they sanctified Sunday as holy. This is one of the passages right here. And it says because, listen, they met on the first day of the week. Now, let me share this with you. If Luke, who is the writer of Acts, believed what Dr. Jeffrey is suggesting, Luke would not have written it this way. He would not have used the common phrase without any reverence to it whatsoever of the first day of the week. It would have looked more like this. He would have said, now on the Lord's day. Do you, you see where I'm going with this? This is how he would have articulated because he would have given reverence to the day if he believed what Dr. Jeffrey is suggesting. My point is he didn't, not not for a moment. And that's why he gives it the common name, this unreverential term of just the first day of the week. Remember, there is actually only one time in all of Scripture where we find this term or this expression, the Lord's day, and that's found in Revelation 1.10. And I want to address it because he brings up... He brings it up in in his passage. I was in the spirit on what? He was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I want to put this phrase up in the Greek for you, the the Lord's day. It's going to help you understand what John is actually talking about here. In the Greek, it looks like this, te kyriake hamera. And kyriake is that part where you see Lord's. And actually, it's kyriakis is, is the term. And do you know what kyriakis means? It comes obviously stemming from kurios, right? It means this, literally belonging to the Lord. Or it can mean special to the Lord. In other words, what it's talking about when it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit on the day belonging to the Lord. The day that belongs to him, that is special to him. Now I ask you, which day scripturally, let's just go biblically minded for a second. Which day scripturally do we know that belongs to the Lord? The Sabbath. It is consistent throughout the entirety of the word that it is his day. In fact, let me remind you, as I mentioned before, when the Lord talks about the Shabbat, he does so in the possessive, as in belonging to him. Exactly what's being expressed here. He says, you shall hallow my Sabbath, possessive. Hallow my Sabbath. You shall not profane my Sabbath. They belong to him. Ask a first century Jew what te kiriakte hamera is, and his response is Shabbat. This This is the only thing in his mind is the Sabbath. To say anything else, To propose what Dr. Jeffrey is proposing here, guess what? You would have to introduce a completely new thing into the scriptures that doesn't exist anywhere. It exists nowhere. It's called interpolation. It's called eisegesis. This is what this is called. You have to read something into the text that can be nowhere found. So weigh them out. What do you think John is saying? When he says, I was in the spirit in the Lord's day, When you think about, when you understand what Shabbat is, 
That's exactly what this is about today. It's about getting into the spirit of God. It's about expecting to come into his presence, to have that, that outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. So for, to look at it from Jewish eyes, a first century Jewish believing eyes, that everything makes perfect sense that John would say, I was in the day, the Lord's day, or the day belonging to the Lord, I was in the spirit. And he was shown all these things. And I'm going to just testify to this. Some of the most powerful revelations that I have ever had in my life, they have come to me on Shabbat. And I'm just telling you the truth. They have come to me on the Sabbath as I go to his word. There's an anointing on this day. Amen? Moving on in this commentary, this is what we read. Sunday was usually identified by the phrase, the first day of the week throughout the New Testament. Absolutely true. That's a fact. It was. It was just simply called Sundays referred to that, that common name, the first day of the week. But look at what he does here. Then he moves on outside the New Testament. This is where it gets interesting. Okay, outside the New Testament, the expression, the Lord's Day appears in the early church document known as the Didache. And he gives the time reference to when it was introduced. Somewhere the, the scholars represent some some 100 to 110, some even say 100 to 120. But either way, I agree with this timetable. It's at the turn of the second century. Okay, this is where we're getting into this. And let me just say this. The Didache is one of the most important documents outside of Scripture that Christianity has. And why is that? Because it's one of the oldest. It goes back and it gives us insight, right? It gives you this special insight into the church, right, at such an early age. So critically important document, uh, typically on the desk of every scholar, okay? So now he's going to quote as evidence, as he gets outside of the New Testament, he's going to quote this early document, the Didache, as proof to show. And this is, this is what he records. And he's actually he's, he's referencing the 14th chapter of the Didache. On the day of the resurrection of the Lord, that is the Lord's day, assemble yourselves together. Now read it as is, just as it is right here. And there's no question that the Didache here is stating that the day of the resurrection of the Lord, which is Sunday, which is the first day of the week, that is the Lord's day, it is being equated to the Lord's day. You got that? This is what it said. Here's the problem. I have the Didache, and I have several copies from several different resources, meaning different translators. And it does not read like that. I want to show you what it reads like. And this is from the D.K. Oh, let's set this up. It doesn't read like this. This phrase, on the day of the resurrection of the Lord, does not appear. And here's what it, this is the reading of it. But every Lord's day, do ye gather yourselves together and break bread? Where is this equivalent of the day of the resurrection of the Lord? It cannot be found. It doesn't exist. It's not there. And so then now we have a serious problem because now the Didache is speaking as though John spoke. He's simply refer he's referencing, hey, every Lord's Day, do you gather yourselves together? I remind you, what is the Shabbat? It's a Mikra Kodesh. It's a sacred assembly. This would be common. I expect this to read this in an early document. 
I expect it to read exactly like this. But there is absolutely nothing about the resurrection, the day of the resurrection of the Lord in the actual DDK. And like I said, I have several copies. It's just not there. And think about the danger of what is being presented here, because if you're a Christian, you don't have, typically Christians don't have access to the DDK. They don't have copies of it. And when you have a scholar making a statement like this, it bears a lot of weight. And to, I mean, if I, you know, I'm looking at this just as what he's saying, I'm like, oh, that's evidence. That's actual, absolute factual evidence. Let me say this before we go on. And I think this is really important. Let's just say his rendering of the DDK was accurate. Let's just say this is exactly what it said, and that Christians during that time were calling the day of the resurrection, Sunday, the first day of the week, they were calling that the Lord's day. Even if they had said that, doesn't make me flinch. Doesn't make me blink. Because it was long after the fact of the New Testament being written. This is out of the apostolic age. You understand? And let me ask you, can things happen? Do things happen after time? In churches, absolutely. Things can go awry all the time. Now, he goes on to say this. Note that this statement in an early church document, the DDK, only 80 years after Mashiach's resurrection. 80 years. He even quotes, this is 80 years after his resurrection. I ask you again, can things happen to the church? Even if we were to go with what he said was right. Do things happen within 80 years? I'm going to tell you right now, the churches in this nation are unrecognizable from where they were 80 years ago. In fact, if the churches that were here 80 years ago, they would have revolted and thrown us out of this country. That's what would have happened. That's how different things are. So when you look at the perspective here, like I said, I wouldn't even blink an eye. But I'm just looking at the D.K. the way it's written. It doesn't say what he says. So... He goes on and he says, the DDK only 80 years after Christ's resurrection confirms. Isn't that interesting? So now he's saying the DDK confirms that Christians worshipped on Sunday. Now this is amazing. On the day of the resurrection of the Lord, that is the Lord's day. And nowhere, according to the DDK, can, can this statement actually be supported? Moving on. In the centuries following Christ's resurrection, the expression, the Lord's Day, became a common synonym for Sunday, the day of Yeshua's resurrection from the grave. Now pay close attention, because this statement is absolutely true. This is true, and you should already know this, because we've already covered this, if you will. This is a true statement. The centuries, as the centuries began to progress... All heck broke loose. This is where all these crazy heretical, you know, when at the turn of the second century, heresy started flying everywhere. And the church was very fragmented. It was not ecumenical. It was not unified. Certainly there were pockets that were perfectly unified. Certainly there were pockets of Shabbat keepers clinging on to the Shabbat, keeping it. But it was very fragmented with Gnosticism. All the other heresies that were coming in, Marcionism. I mean, there was was 
No, there was an abundance of that. And then in addition to that, you had different sects of Christianity that condemned Marcionism, that condemned Gnosticism, but yet started separating themselves from the Jews. You understand? I mean, it was just crazy. You had the Abionites. So even within the faith and the Jewish aspect, it was totally fractured. There was all these different sects floating around. Now, continuing on. The early church father, Ignatius. So now he's going to quote, again, he's just substantiating his claims here. Was a disciple with Polycarp under the spiritual direction of the apostle John, their bishop. In the non-canonical book, the epistle of Ignatius to the Magnesians, Ignatius twice used the expression, the Lord's day, as a reference to Sunday as the common day of Christian worship. And then he goes to quote uh, Ignatius here. Ignatius wrote, after the observance of the Sabbath, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's day as a festival. The resurrection day, the queen and chief of all days of the week. Ignatius did say this. The the, the problem, again, I have, and he did not include it in his book, nor in his footnotes. What he just quoted, yes, it comes out of uh, Ignatius' epistle to the Magnesians. What he doesn't discuss is this: this is not from the short form. This is not from the short version, which is considered the more original document. This is from the extended version, which some scholars put out from the 2nd to 3rd century. All this time going by. That is relevant. That is extremely relevant that this is from the extended version, which most believe that Ignatius had nothing to do with this. But this was in a later edition. But be that as it may, let's just think about something. We remember, you got to remember who this guy is, who Ignatius was. This was the same guy that commanded all believers to forsake the Sabbath. And he went further and he condemned anyone that would keep the Shabbat as being a heretic, calling them idle. You are a sinner if you do this. And remember, this was the guy that spoke like the dragon, like Pharaoh spoke to Israel. Same guy. And so this is not a well that I want to draw from. When I'm looking to support something scripturally, doctrinally, theologically, I'm not going to Ignatius. It's just not going to happen. But this is exactly what scholars are are doing today. It's to somehow prove that their claims to abandon the Shabbat, they are legitimate. This is the Christian thing to do. Now, moving on in the chapter, he asks the question, did the early church worship on Saturday or Sunday? And he answers it. Over the last few centuries, a variety of groups, including Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists, have claimed that Christians have sinfully abandoned the true Saturday worship of God's biblically authorized Sabbath and adopted Sunday worship, thus changing the times and laws of God. Well, that's exactly what happened. Okay? I mean, that's exactly what happened. For someone to say with kind of a disdain tone to me, oh, Daniel, you think the sun is hot and water is wet. That's you see what's going on here? You see the game being played? That was, that's ridiculous. And I go out and I, I feel the sun. It's hot. I touch water. It's wet. It's that simple. He goes on. They claim that God commanded believers to worship on Saturday and never change that command. That is exactly what we claim. 
Because that's exactly what the word says. You can't find one single solitary passage in scripture. Get away from history, church history. Scripture. This is the prevailing document, and you can find nothing. Not one single scripture where God has abolished his Shabbat and given a new day. It just doesn't exist. Now, there is one more thing in particular here that is is worth just briefly addressing, and that is the statement that he makes, that Christians have, have sinfully abandoned the true Saturday worship. You know, the problem I have with this statement is that if you're a Christian reading this document, you're going to think that, you're going to come away with thinking the majority of Sabbath keepers think, because I don't keep the Sabbath, I'm just a filthy pagan. I mean, this is what you walk away with. And I want to be very clear, that is not true. That is not true. As I've already mentioned before, there are many Christians who have no idea about the Shabbat. And really what it is, is it's a Joshua scenario. Where remember, Joshua was on holy ground, but he had his shoes on. He was doing what was not right in the eyes of the Lord. And he didn't know better until the angel came to him and said, take your shoes off, the place where you stand is holy. Joshua being a reverential man of fear, loving the Lord with all his heart, when he knew, then he abided. He did this. And let me tell you, there are a lot of Joshua's in the faith today, all over in every denomination in Christianity that have a heart for Yeshua. And they are living in a state of salvation. They are saved. And only a foolish person would attack the integrity of a person's relationship with Yeshua. That's death. That would be death. There's a vast difference between ignorance, right, and rebellion. And we are going to have to make a distinction. Amen? Yes, I mean, yes, the traditional church, the Christian church in general has abandoned the Sabbath, but it doesn't mean that God has abandoned the people. And as they are trying to serve him with all their heart, soul, and strength, according to what they know, I promise you one thing, he hears them. They're in the faith. And so we need to be spiritually mature about this. And I I just bring this up because it makes me uneasy when I hear this type of terminology being thrown because you know what? Satan is trying to throw us under the bus and try to make us look evil and vindictive and judgmental and condemning and hateful. Now, granted, have some, some of us fell in regard to that. God forbid we have, right? There's been some people, but that is not the path that we've been called to take. But despite that, it doesn't preclude us from going forth and proclaiming truth and telling them what the enemy has done to the church, how he has come to steal from them. So we've got to proclaim this light. With that said, let's continue in this chapter. Further, they, meaning Sabbatarians, they claim that the early church unanimously worshipped together on the Saturday Sabbath for many decades. If we were just to stop there, yes, that's exactly what we claim. Read the New Testament. There's no debate whatsoever. Or even centuries until church, uh, centuries until church leaders arbitrarily changed the day of worship to Sunday without any command or authorization from God. I want to talk about this because, I mean, stop here at many decades, we're good. 
or even centuries until church leaders arbitrarily changed. Yeah, as the centuries developed, you know what? There wasn't unification. It was not unanimous by believers in Yeshua to all keep Shabbat. It's a true statement. And we can just read history. You can read Ignatius, right? You can read uh, Methodius, his epistle to Diognetus. You can read the history. We can read history, and we can see that is true. But to formulate the words the way he does is to suggest that we're crazy. This never really happened. There was no unification. It's not true. And that um, they just arbitrarily changed the day of Sunday without any command. That sounds ridiculous. Well, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Now, moving on, this is what we read. Some anti-Sunday worship writers. Again, I don't like this. I don't like some of the, the phraseology here some anti-Sunday worship writers, because this indicates that everyone who keeps the Sabbath is anti-Sunday worship. That's ridiculous. We as believers, Sabbatarians, we should love to go to synagogue or church on Sunday. It's a beautiful thing to do. We should want to go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm not working that much. I'm just telling you right now. The point being is, it is a beautiful thing for us to go to synagogue, to go to church on Sunday. <clears throat> what an awesome thing to do. It's a beautiful thing to worship the Lord every single day. According to Psalm 55, morning, noon, and night, we're to praise him, right? And so I, I just want to say, you know, when he says some anti-Sunday worshiper, I want to make sure we're all on the same page that uh, the problem is not going to church on Sunday. Let's identify the problem. The problem is shifting and abandoning God's commandment and creating new ones. That's the problem. We don't have the power to just start deeming days holy. We're not God. We're not to play God. Amen? So some anti-Sunday worship uh, writers, and I appreciate uh, his carefulness in not saying all, he says some. They have falsely claimed that the church initially worshipped on the Saturday Sabbath for almost three centuries until it was suddenly changed by to Sunday when Emperor Constantine, the head of the Roman Empire, issued a decree in 321. Here, there's so much to be said here because we get into the, the process of, and it's a very hard thing to do. You, know, you read this chapter the way it is, he was very careful about how he articulated his words. But when you enter into debates, it's, it's imperative to define the writer's own terms and how he, the intent of what's behind them. For example, they falsely claim that the church initially worshipped Saturday Sabbath for almost three centuries. Well, there's an absolute fact that there were God-fearing, believing Christians who were keeping the Sabbath. There is no question about that. Christianity's own documents prove it. So this is not debatable, okay, for three centuries. And it wasn't just three centuries. It was long after. But he's getting at the point, but then it was suddenly changed to Sunday when Emperor Constantine, the head of the Roman Empire, issued the decree. There is a common misconception. He is right. And I know he's probably heard it as many times as have I heard it, that oh, when Constantine came on the, sh on the scene, everything changed. He screwed up everything. That's not true. 
And you know this now. You went through this. It predates Constantine long before he ever was alive. Christians were abandoning the Shabbat. And so there's a component here that I absolutely agree with. However, having said that, to be fair and to look at the work that Constantine did, Constantine had a monumental impact on unifying the church's position at an ecumenical level. That is a fact. And just to say that Constantine, well, flippantly say uh, he had nothing to do with it or it wasn't him, nothing happened here. No, something monumental happened. This is when they got organized in this doctrine, this theology. And that's the platform they had to grow on. So he was monumental, but no, it did not change with him. And so this is important for you to know, because if you're going to talk to well-educated pastors, if you're going to talk to well-educated believers who are students of the word or even professors and and Bible scholars, uh, this is something you will be confronted with. And you certainly don't want to stick your foot in your mouth, historically speaking, and just be totally off and have someone write you off because it's just not true. This change did not happen with Constantine. Now he goes on, and this is what he says. This claim that the church worshipped for centuries on Saturday and then abruptly switched to Sunday as a result of Emperor Constantine is false, and he is right. It is false. The controversy over Saturday or Sunday worship has often confused Christians who do not have access to difficult-to-find books that provide accurate details about the history of the church. I'm going to read that again. The controversy over Saturday or Sunday worship has often confused Christians who do not have access to difficult-to-find books. Who cares about these books? The only book that matters is this book. It's irrelevant. There's only one book, and we have access to it. United States of America, we used to be able to go into hotels and grab a Bible, the Gideon's Bible. We have access to the truth. The confusion is these little hard-to-find books that the scholars are reading and they're regurgitating and at times they're not even doing it accurately. That's the confusion. I mean, you think about this. This is the problem. This is the problem. Moving on. The historical truth is that the church never changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Well, now we get into defining terms. Well, how would you define the church? Before I could really truly answer this question, how would you define the church? Who is the church? Okay. From the very beginning of the church, following the resurrection of the Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, what did they do? Listen to the words he utilizes very carefully. They celebrated communion together on Sunday. Notice he doesn't say they kept the Sabbath together on Sunday. Notice he doesn't say they celebrated the Holy Day together uh, on Sunday, or that they rested together according to the commandment on Sunday. He doesn't say anything. There's no reverential term being given here, even by his own words, by his own confession. It is simply they celebrated communion together. Well, celebrating communion together, getting together and eating together constitutes the Shabbat, and every day is the Sabbath. And how do we know this? Well, let's read Acts 2.46. So continuing daily, and in the Greek... If you go to the Greek, it's kafhameron. It means every day, literally. This is the definition, every day. So read it. So continuing every day with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, they're communing together from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of the heart. 
Does this make every day a Sabbath? No. The fact that they got together on the first day of the week doesn't make it a Sabbath. I mean, this is crazy. He continues on. The truth is that immediately following Messiah's resurrection, and it's very important, and I highlighted this, because now we're getting to defining, I mean, we can say, all of us can say the early church. What does that mean? What do we mean by early church? Do you mean the second, third, fourth century? Do you mean the first century through the sixth century? Or do you mean the first century, the apostolic? I mean, what is the terms being defined? I love this because now we're getting to the core of what he's thinking and what he is saying. The truth is immediately following Messiah's resurrection, we are talking about the apostolic age, the era. His disciples and followers began to worship on Sunday. The first day of the week, because this was the day that Yeshua rose from their grave. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. And so he, he quotes John 20, the fact for evidence that the, the first century church actually changed the Shabbat. They, abandoned, they, they started keeping Sunday as holy. The evidence he gives is John 20, that the women went to the tomb. That was it. This has nothing to do whatsoever with observing Sunday as holy. Their Savior had died, and we're, we're going to get into this further. I'm not I'm going to go there. But the point he's saying is, is that this has nothing to do with the Shabbat. And this is something, we'll talk about this in, in the coming weeks of conditional bias. The only way you could even possibly entertain the notion that this has to do with the Shabbat is if you had pre-programming. And we'll get into that deeper and what that really looks like and how that has affected the church and how that has affected the study of the word. But for now, let me I want to finish his thought. Three specific New Testament texts refer to the early church worshiping on Sunday. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're not we're stop with the history. Now we're getting to the word of God. This is this is the wheelhouse. This is where I want to be, amen. The first day of the week as the normal day of Christian worship. And the text he gives, and these are across the board. When you talk to any student of the word, these are the three texts that you will get. This is evidence. The first piece of evidence, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Acts 27, we looked at, and John 20, verse 1. These are the three. And so what we're going to do uh, as we wrap things up here, we're going to look at these texts individually. Because when we're dealing with, when we're confronted with scripture, now this gets serious. This gets very serious. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, this is what it says. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. Notice, again, this has nothing to do with the Shabbat. This has nothing to do with the holy day of rest. There's no reverential term being given to the first day of the week. Notice it doesn't say the Lord's day. That's a reverential term of holiness, of sanctity, identifying that. But it's completely absent. Paul is simply making the statement, listen guys, Corinthians, as you begin your week, the first thing that needs to be on your mind is the offering. The first thing that needs to be on your mind is setting money aside for the elect for the saints who are in need. And let me tell you something. It's a biblical concept. Okay, just look at Scripture in being consistent. It has to be consistent. Leviticus 23. I'll show you how consistent this concept is. And Paul is just implying this. 
Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you and you reap its harvest, this is your income. This is your, this is what you're gleaning. You're taking this in. This is your profit. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. When? Hmm. Interesting. On the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. This is when you do it. So you go, you get your increase, you have your increase. And the very first thing you do on the first day of the week is make sure you offer that which belongs to the Lord. Very powerful. Leviticus going to jump into 23:14. You shall neither eat, or you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute uh, forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So listen. So when we read this text that on the first day of the week, let each of one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may what prosper. Here comes the income part. Here, here's where it comes. It makes perfect sense what Paul is conveying here. And in fact, we're not supposed to partake of that which God has given us until he gets his. So when it makes sense that on the first day of the week, make sure your offering goes first. And then you can partake of the rest as you begin your week. Biblical concept. Nothing to do with the Shabbat. Paul is a Jew, Torah-observant Jew, who's literally has Torah within his heart, and he's, in, he's, he's, he's utilizing a Torah principle. It's beautiful. In fact, let me build on this, so you shouldn't think I'm so creative and inventive. I want to take you and show you the NIV. Now, keep in mind, the NIV, Cultural Background Study Bible, gives a commentary on this passage. And I want to show you what it says. It's absolutely amazing. blew my mind. The first day... Meaning the first day when they met, okay? So Paul says on the first day, lay something aside. It comes out and says, the first day might reflect the biblical principle of devoting the first of one's earnings to God, although payment was by day rather than by week, or it might recall Yeshua's resurrection. And so it paints two paths here. Well, it might mean Paul's utilizing the biblical principle, which I just Uh, presented to you, or it might be referring to the resurrection. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Now, pay close attention. Christians also may have often met on the first day of the week in honor of Yeshua's resurrection. Listen to what this says. I'll highlight this. Although our first explicit evidence for this role for Sunday comes from the second century at the earliest, from half a century after Paul's letter. In other words, understand what he just said. Well, this whole concept of the Lord's Day being the first day of the week and, and all of that, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't exist until after the turn of the second century. And 50 years after, Paul actually wrote this. And so you think about it, when Paul wrote this, what the writer is saying, it's not an option. It's not even an option. And, and he closes it out, just in case you want to understand what he's saying. In keeping with your income, this kind of giving fits biblical models. Absolutely Amazing. Right out of the NIV commentary. Let's look at the second passage that Dr. Jeffrey quoted. It was Acts 20. We already covered this. Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples get together to break bread. Well, they broke bread every day of the week. Pure and simple. And again, just to reiterate, nothing about the sanctity. No 
term of sanctity or reverence is given to this first day of the week. It just doesn't exist. Now, going to John 21, we're going to close in this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, apparently, this is evidence that Jewish believers, Jewish believers, that they started keeping Sunday as holy. I don't even know how you get there. I mean, if I if I ask somebody, I don't even know an analogy to spin right now, but if I was to ask somebody, somebody hey, I want to see the NASA Space Center. And they said, Daniel, I'll happily show you the NASA Space Center. Perfect. And they bring me to the Antarctic, frozen over, blowing snow, nothing but ice. And they say, here's the NASA Space Center. And I say, well, wait, wait a second. Where are the rockets? Where are the rocket scientists? Where are the computers? Where's the training program? Where's the training facility? See, I'm starting to build a case here going, there's something wrong with you. I'm looking at Arctic. I'm looking at snow. And he was like, no, 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 Daniel. It's the NASA Space Center. And he does this theological Jedi mind trick where I'm just supposed to go, oh, it's the NASA Space I see it now. I see what you're saying. It's insane. This is what I'm showing you. I, I, forgive me for being silly, but the fact that you're trying to make this into the Sabbath on this text is beyond silly. It's beyond comprehension. Let me just take you to Luke 23. Very same recordation of this story. And what I want to show you is actually, interestingly enough, the writer purposely makes a distinction between the two. Makes the distinction this is what we read in Luke 23, 55. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how Yeshua's body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And what does it say? And they rested on the Shabbat according to the commandment. According to the commandment. Keep in mind, not written contemporaneously, written years after the fact, looking back, and the writer injects this reality. He says they went and rested on the Sabbath, giving the term the reverence it is due by calling it the Shabbat, right? Makes a clear distinction. And then it goes on to say, now on the first day of the week, distinction was made. It's exactly what he just did. He just made a distinction between the Shabbat and the first day of the week. And so I don't care if you rally all the king's horses and all the king's men, you cannot put this argument back together again. You just can't do it, all right? So we're going to close on that one. You can bring the music team up, and uh, we're going to close with a word of prayer. Abba, Father, we just give you praise and glory, first and foremost, for your grace, your grace and mercy through your Son, the Messiah, Yeshua, whom we do not deserve, and we have done nothing in this life to merit that sacrifice. And uh, we do not delude ourselves for a moment, Lord Yeshua, but we humble ourselves before you. And we call upon your name, knowing that only those who call upon the name of Yeshua will be saved. Us going out, keeping the Sabbath in and of itself will not save us. The only thing that will save us is your mercy, your sacrifice. But you have commanded truth, Lord. You have commanded those that you said, if you love me, keep my commandments, Lord. This is what you have spoken, and by your grace and your mercy, you are revealing, you are revealing yourself to us. 
And there's more to be revealed. We don't have, we know we're not under any delusion whatsoever. We don't have everything that we need to have from you. I don't believe that. I know there's more. And I know there's a powerful anointing that you give to lead us and guide us and instruct us and teach us and to tell us, according to what you said, Lord Yeshua, you would tell us the things that would come by your Holy Spirit. And knowing the days we're living in, we need to be in relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray that you send out your Holy Spirit right now, that you convict the people that need to be convicted, that you lift up the people that need to be lifted up to encourage, that you speak the words that people need to hear. If they're harboring bitter feelings or anger against someone, Lord, we pray for that that conviction, that we might confess our sins today and that we might be a holy lump without spot or wrinkle through your blood. And we take time to pray for the Jewish people. We take time to pray for, uh, first and foremost, the believing Jewish people, those who have confessed you, Lord, those who are written in the Lamb's book of life and those who labor for your word. And we pray for protection for them, Lord, not just in the land, but those that are scattered abroad today. There's so many Jews scattered all over the world. Lord, I pray that you protect them, continue to bless them, open up doors for them to proclaim your holy name and your truth. And we yearn for the day of the unification of Israel, Lord, on that marvelous day where the world will see that you love Israel. They will see it and they will triumph through the might of our Lord Yeshua. With that said, everyone rise. We are going to do our battle cry. Doing things a little backwards today. Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we all say, or not. (laughs) Today, we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. We will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.